Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Robin Hilton. And we're looking back at music milestones from the past decade on this episode. It's the year 2013, and we start with this. This is My Bloody Valentine from the record MBV that came out at the top of the year. I am with NPR Music Sydney Madden. Hello. And Tom Heisinger. And, uh, hey, Robin. We're going to talk about this and more on this episode as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of NPR Music and look, look back Yay. at the past decades. Yes. This was a, an, an album that came out right at the top of the year. Uh, it had been 22 years in the making. Uh, <laughs> My Bloody Valentine had put out just this incredible record called Loveless in 1991, and a lot of people considered it the best record of the entire decade of the 90s. So. Fans have been like just salivating over the idea of a new My Bloody Valentine record. They've been just so eagerly anticipating it for 22 years. And an entire generation was born and came of age <laughs> since their last record. You think they might have like forgotten who the band was? And that amount or, of time? or even outgrown the band? Yeah, there you go. Well, I, it's interesting you say that because, you know, with all the talk around this record, the band and Kevin Shields, who fronts the band, ended up dropping it completely unannounced out of nowhere, put it up online on their website. And for as excited as everyone was to get it, it felt like within a week, it felt like it had sort of already, you know, fizzled. The reaction to the record wasn't as strong as you would have expected for an album that people were waiting for for 22 years. And maybe maybe it's because people had either outgrown the sound or it wasn't something that newer fans discovered. Well, and just think of how we consume music, how that changed. In a 22-year span, yeah, maybe um, their fan base, the breath was too baited at that point. Yeah, I guess that the, the lead-up to it was more thrilling than everything that came after the music dropped. And David Bowie and Daft Punk also came back after long mm-hmm. returns, and they, they released records. It was 10 years for Bowie, and he, also, and he liked My Bloody Valentine, just dropped a record out of nowhere. It was eight years for Daft Punk. And with Bowie's record the next day, I think people kind of had the same reaction. It's like as excited as they were, it didn't seem to track with anyone after it came out. I don't know. I love that record. We love that record, but I question whether or not newer audiences discovered Bowie or whether it was played and loved as much as all of his stuff before that long break. And the Daft Punk record, Random Access Memories, on the other hand, 
their rollout was completely different. It was right. such a calculated effort on their part. It had been eight years, but they spent months hyping this record. They had Facebook posts and TV ads. They ran a, a trailer during Coachella, teasing <laughs> teasing the music. There were billboard ads all over the all over bigger cities, you know, and. Um, it was very calculated, and they went on to win just about everything at the Grammys uh, the next year. Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Best Pop Duo of the Year, Best Dance Electronic Album of the Year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pressure to put on when you when you roll something out like that. Then you've, you've really got to come up with something, an album that's really, really good. And to my mind, actually, you know, I all of the hype... I wasn't as big a fan of the album as a lot of people were. I thought, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's been hyped so much that it's got to be something off the charts great, and... You know there were there were tunes on it that I really like, but the Daft as, Punk you're talking the about, the Daft Punk yeah. album, but as a whole, mm. see, I disagree. I think the rollout was so calculated because they knew they had absolute gold. I think it really did live up to the hype. They um they recruited a bunch of living legends for live instru- yep. instrumentation in the studio. I remember the Nile Rodgers. The Nile Rodgers track, Pharrell, Julian Casablancas from The Strokes, even Giorgio. It was it, <laughs> and they really called upon a time that I think fans did not expect them to, which was kind of like a homage to like this '70s, '80s funk, but mixed with their own signature sound. So it was kind of like a creamy cyborg disco party. I think it. I think it definitely lived up to the hype. And I think the reason they had such a calculated plan is because they knew they had so much time off. They knew they had to come back swinging, and they really did. I wonder how important hype is leading up. You know, there's mm-hmm. just so many gimmicks now yep. leading up to the release of a record, just desperately trying to get people's attention. And I wonder how much that matters. And there was a record that came out at the end of the year that was also a complete surprise, and no one would say that it wasn't a success, and that's Beyonce's self-titled record. Let me hear you say, hey, Miss Carter. Say, hey, Miss Carter. Give me some. See me up in the club with 51 girls. Posted in the back, dumb and fangs in my grill. Brooklyn brim with my eyes sitting low. Never born here with me, got that smoke. And every girl in here gotta look me up and down. All on Instagram, cake by the pound. Circulate the image every time I come around. 
Yeah, Beyonce's self-titled comeback as a mother, as a full-grown woman, as a self-managed woman. And it's so funny, you, we recalled how Daft Punk had this big calculated rollout plan, whereas Beyonce had the total antithesis, which was <laughs> dropping it so nonchalantly and just dropping a bomb on fans in late December 2013. And there was really no attention prior there was no promotion no marketing and it just came out and made such huge waves it was the first album on itunes that was a visual album because it came out with i think it was 17 non-linear music videos and beyonce really wanted to do this to as she said in a later interview to disrupt the industry standard of digesting music by singles and investing fans in a more immersive experience and it really paid off in that way it positioned her as a game changer in the industry because now a lot of pop r&b and rap artists drop albums and works with no promotion. And it was the fastest selling album in the history of iTunes at that time. So even though there was no attention, she she knew the strength of her fan base to the point where she knew they would consume it and buy it and she knew they would follow her. And I think we can we can thank her for the switch of the album release day of the week Absolutely. now. Because she dropped that on a Friday. On Friday. And, and now all the new releases are dropped on a Friday. I remember when the record dropped, it, it took everybody here on our team by surprise. And we're decimated the- everybody's top 10 <laughs> list <laughs> for the year that we'd already put to bed Whoops. and we're like, yeah. we're done with that. Oh no. <laughs> Not only was it this huge moment in the music business, but artistically it was a big moment for her. It was her, fir- it was her first comeback after having her first child, Blue, which she featured on the album. Right. It was the first time I believe she was managing herself through Parkwood Entertainment and you could really audibly feel that she was having fun with tracks like Partition, Yancey, Drunken Love. It was the first time you felt as a listener that she was in control of her own career and not just this industry-made R&B and pop powerhouse. She was really her own woman. Well, I think the question, the interesting question that many marketers must have asked themselves when the album dropped is like, am I going to have a job tomorrow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there was no marketing, no anything. <laughs> And think like, of the money they saved, right? Uh, just the millions that they they I, know, I think they Daft spent Punk, it on those videos, though. You're on Madison Avenue, you're thinking, "Gosh, we don't have to do anything. We just drop." I'm it. just picturing Daft Punk looking at their bill, <laughs> billboards, right, and thinking, "Why did we? Why did we get a billboard? Why did we?" Hands do in their heads. Hands <laughs> no, their they were lo- they were looking at the bills from their marketing strategists, <laughs> mm-hmm. saying, "We needn't have spent all that money." And I, I guess the other thing I think that's, I mean, not really important, but just as a phenomenon that is just. It, is amazing to me is it was the first social media moment where she blew up the internet Mm -hmm. she's she's continued to blow up the internet a lot since then but this that was the first moment where you're everyone's just completely freaking out absolutely and she's just sitting there all she did was push a button it was simple as that she says my visual album is out now and then she later referenced it back when she had when she was on the remix of Nicki Minaj change the game with the digital drop which is 110 percent true Um, So we have to take a a short break, and we'll have more in a moment. Support for NPR Music's 10th anniversary and the following message come from Isotope, makers of Spire Studio, the portable multi-track recording system that lets you easily capture, mix, and edit professional-quality songs wherever and whenever inspiration strikes. With built-in Wi-Fi, Spire Studio seamlessly connects to the Spire app, so you can ditch the cables to collaborate and share with bandmates and fans around town or around the world. Learn more at Spire.live. 
We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of NPR Music, looking back at milestones from the past decade. And uh, we're talking 2013 with Sydney Madden and Tom Heisinger of NPR Music. And we are barely even scratching the surface of the surface <laughs> of everything that happened in 2013. Uh, but for now, let's listen to this. So we've lost so many artists over the last five years. Uh, but in 2013, we lost George Jones. And I know you were a huge fan, Tom. You know, George is considered the kind of the king of country music, but uh, I don't think that really cuts it because I really believe that he is really one of America's great singers of any genre, like Maria Callas or Billie Holiday or Edith Piaf. I think he was a... George was a supreme communicator, whether he was like, this song we're listening to right now is a simple country shuffle, right? Right, yeah. But he infuses it with this, the immense loneliness of alcoholism and how he does it with his voice. I mean, the song starts out, what what goes on with the mind of a man in a bar? And it ends with uh, a life ain't worth living if it's out of control. It's, it's amazing what he can do with his voice. You know, it wasn't an opulent, big voice. I don't know if you know, like, for instance, like Ray Price, a uh, mm-hmm. contemporary, who who had could run up and down the scales, just a, just a terrifically gorgeous voice. But I think George had something better. He had the ability to sing a song, like, straight into your heart, make you double up inside, and then this twist that pain just a notch more by breaking up these syllables with little melismatic phrases or scooping down to a low note or just hollowing out a word with a, his that clenched jaw attack. It's just amazing. And when I was listening to the lyrics at the top, I thought, man, it's pretty hard to beat country music when it comes to this kind of storytelling and lyricism. Well, I think that's true. You know, I, I feel like I knew George Jones, even though I never met him. I saw him in concert twice, but... I feel like I know him because when I was a kid, my stepdad, nearly every night when I was a youngster, sat at the foot of my bed with his guitar and sang country music to me, wow. sang me to sleep and these old country songs. And later on, those those bedside songs, they helped me realize that the people in George Jones's songs, for instance, like He Stopped Loving Her Today or The Grand Tour, these are people with real stories and real dead serious problems. I mean, these are transmissions straight from the heart. And these, to me, these weren't stories I was getting from rock and roll. I mean, Stairway to Heaven. I mean, what, really, what <laughs> What does that do for you lyrically? Like, yeah. for me, nothing. Mm-hmm. Then let's talk Dylan, who's obviously, you know, one of the great poets. He just mm-hmm. won the Nobel Prize and everything. Just like a Rolling Stone, I mean, okay, it's a, a revenge song 
about a young bourgeoisie woman who gets dumped from her luxurious lifestyle. To me, it just doesn't... Connect. It doesn't connect quite as good. And I think that it's easy to poo-poo country music and its topics, but I think um, I think people are missing something. Uh, when you get a hold of a really well-written country music song, it goes deep. Another artist we lost a little bit later in 2013 whose impact on music... Uh, just can't even begin to question it uh, <laughs> is this guy I don't know just where I'm going but I'm gonna try If I can, cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein And I tell you things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing on my run And I feel just like Jesus' son And I guess that I just don't know And I guess that I just don't know And that's of course Lou Reed in his uh, Velvet Underground years. And in the song Heroin. So here, I think, you know, arguably, when you talk about Lou Reed, you have to immediately talk about influence. Influence, influence, influence. I mean, this is direct lines from, you know, this uh, this early Velvet Underground record from 1967 to, what, everything punk, for sure. Um, bands like Talking Heads, Patti Smith, you could argue grunge. Just an amazing influence. There's that famous uh, Brian Eno quote where he... He supposes that maybe only 30,000 copies of Velvet Underground and Nico were sold, and then he goes on to say, but everyone who bought one of those 30,000 copies started a band. Right. Yeah, I mean, they weren't like they weren't hugely popular at the time. It, it took a while before people could really appreciate the influence that they were having. But, I mean, I think you hear it on everything from the Beatles all through the punk scene, you know, all the way up now to artists like Courtney Barnett or... Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that that struck me as a younger person listening to the music was that just the danger, the darkness, songs about drugs and love and regret and alienation, but done often very darkly, but very clear-eyed. And even the song like Heroin is written in such a way, I don't think that really anybody had written about drugs at that point. It's just from a very clear-eyed, stoic way. And if you read the I'm going to read some of the lines now. It, just, it does read quite poetically. I don't know just where I'm going, but I'm going to try for the kingdom if I can, because it makes me feel like I'm a man. When I put the spike into my vein and I tell you things aren't quite the same, when I'm rushing on my run and I feel just like Jesus' son, and I guess that I just don't know. And I love this kind of dichotomy between our old conceptions of kind of highbrow and lowbrow, because... Lou Reed was an English major, highly literate, but kind of cloaked as this gritty street punk.
And even the production qualities there that we're hearing, you know, this kind of DIY sound feels very contemporary to me today. The kind of, you know, the unadorned guitar that's almost out of tune and then that single pounding drum. I mean, you hear so much indie rock and rock today that is born from this, it seems to me. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because there are so many other records made around that same time that you listen to and even though you still like the music they sound dated just for like things are panned hard to the left or to the right you know there's no nuance in the mix and and this doesn't have that you're right it it still holds up it feels like something that could have been done in somebody's bedroom Right. And, you know, later, uh, you know, Lou left the underground in about 1970 and went on to make a bunch of records himself on his own and and later hooked up with Laurie Anderson. And uh, eventually they were married. And I'll never forget uh, at the University of Maryland um, listening to and watching Laurie Anderson and the Kronos Quartet perform uh, one of Laurie Anderson's uh, performance pieces and uh, directly in the seat behind me is Lou Reed. Wow. And about 20 minutes, you know, the lights are, are down. 20 minutes later, you know, into the show, I hear this very soft snoring, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I turn around. I dare to turn around because it's dark. Nobody's going to see me turn around. <laughs> I turn around and it's Lou snoring. Wow. And, uh, you know, I never would have, uh, I never could have imagined that eight months later he'd be dead. Oh. With as, as huge as it was that we lost Lou Reed and, and also George Jones, you, Tom, you think there's somebody we lost in 2013 and, and whose death you think may be the biggest thing from the entire year? Well, I think you could argue it, and that's Van Cliburn and the pianist Van Cliburn. And some people might say today, well, who is Van Cliburn? I mean, some young people might say that. And I think it's easy to forget how important classical music was in America at one time, you know, before rock and roll really got charged up. I mean, you saw classical composers and musicians on the front of Time magazine, and Van Cliburn was really a rock star before there were rock stars. Mm. I mean, he was the only solo musician of any stripe to be honored with a ticker tape parade in New York City, and this was in 1958. At the height of the Cold War, this guy returns as a complete American hero on the largest possible scale, and that's why they threw him this ticker tape. You know, he was a huge talent for for quite a few years, and then he had this big fallow period for a while, and he created a piano competition uh, after his own name, the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition. It's one of the biggest in the world and still running today, but it was a big, I think it was a big loss because it makes you think of the time when classical music held a little more weight than it does today in the lives of uh, regular Americans. It sounds the way you talk about it, like it was a real end to a chapter in music history, not just for him personally, but for what he represented. 
Well, I, I think these days, classical music sales digitally and physically in the United States are, are down to practically nothing. And uh, orchestras and opera houses having trouble making budgets. And uh, it makes me a little misty-eyed for the past, I guess. Like I said earlier on, we're not going to get to everything in this year, but real quickly, what are some of the other ones? uh, Tom, you go. Uh, Well, speaking of classical music and and good things about classical music, um, didn't want to make it all sound like a downer, but uh, Mm -hmm. Carolyn Shaw won the Pulitzer in 2013. She was the youngest music Pulitzer winner, and uh, she won for a very kind of strange piece of vocal music, but her career has just blossomed, and now she, uh, for me, she's one of the most exciting composers and performers on the scene today, uh, which gives me a lot of hope. I'll say Earl Sweatshirt put out a record that year. I forgot that that was 2013, that I, Doris uh, oh, was yeah. on, which was uh, right on my... before he went to um, boarding school, right? Yeah, and that was like in my top 10. Uh, Lord's Pure Heroine came yes. out. Uh, my number one record that year that didn't register with anybody else probably in this room was the Flaming Lips record, The Terror. Uh, you definitely can't forget Kanye West. He dropped his sixth studio album, Yeezus, in June 2013. It was his experimentation period with drill, with um, some chest-pounding Acid House Incorporation. It was also a renaissance period for his good music label. Kid Cudi had just departed, and Travis Scott was really having his uh, his moment to shine as a producer. And it was a punctuating moment of 2013. And did you know that Lou Reed wrote a review of Yeezus? He was really, really? yes, he did. I did. <laughs> yeah, he liked it <laughs> for the times. He liked it. I don't know where it was published, but he th- that was obviously the year that he died. But he he wrote a review of it. Well, let's go out on on Kanye then. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Sydney. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. It's all songs considered. Thanks for listening to and supporting NPR Podcasts. To view the entire NPR Podcast catalog, visit npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.